You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It is, uh, it's a joy to, to be with you all. And uh, as you've heard in the liturgy already, we're going to be looking at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 16 through 20. And uh, that's on page 835, if you're using the black hardcover Bible uh, in, the, in the seats there. And, and as you're turning there, I just want to say, um, it, it has been such a joy for, for me personally to uh, get to be around the, some of you folks from this church over the last uh, six months or so, and as I've gotten to, to meet you. And, and so I've just felt so welcomed by, by this family, um, not just by, especially by the pastors, but by all of you. And so thank you uh, for those of you who have gotten to know me, who've um, spent some time with me. I'm really grateful. And this was the first morning where I came here and it didn't feel like I was visiting, which was awesome. So I'm grateful for, for this church and the work God's doing in it. Well, uh, the more cynical among you uh, might say this morning, okay, I know what this sermon is. We had church planting Sunday last Sunday. We're doing the, the fundraising thing for Midtown Community Church. And now, coincidentally, we have the pastor of that church plant here to talk to us about church planting. This is the tug on the heartstring sermon, isn't it? <laughs> this is the one where you ask for, all the, you ask for the money, you, you try to rile people up. That's not my only aim this morning. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of them, but it's not my only aim. It's not actually the main aim of this sermon. Um, I have something much bigger in mind. This sermon is not just an appeal for you all as a church, for us to get on board with, with the planting of Midtown Community Church, but with church planting in general. And I'm going to appeal to you all this morning that every Christian and every church ought to be meaningfully and sacrificially involved in their life to plant more churches. And that this is something that we not only have to do, a burden, but something that we joyfully get to participate in, that God invites all of us into. And so with that said, let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. It says there, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you pray with me now that God would come and teach us from his word? Father, we come before you now and we thank you that that we do stand on a firm foundation that you have spoken clearly in your word to us. And I pray this morning as we come to it and we consider what it says, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would mold us, and that you would change us by the power of the word of God and send us out from here as those who are filled with joy in the promises of God and the presence of Jesus Christ. We'd be those who give of our lives for you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, I think it was said uh, in, in the liturgy this morning, but, but this section of scripture is often referred to as the Great Commission. And we're going to use that title to frame the outline for my sermon this morning. So first, we're going to look at the Great Church Planting Commission. So we're going to actually look at the words of Jesus here, that his command in verses 19 and 20. Then we'll look at a great church planting problem. Read great in scare quotes. And lastly, a great church planting promise. So the great church planting commission, a great church planting problem, and a great church planting promise. So first, let's look at these words again in verse 19, Jesus's great church planting commission. It says there, just so it's fresh in our mind, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, most Christians and churches throughout the ages have given this command a high regard in their thought and practice. And, and it really is a great, uh, expansive charge that Jesus gives here. And this command, this commission, sets the priority for the life of a Christian. Our greatest priority as followers of Jesus is to make disciples or to try to make it a little bit more concrete, um, to, to make other followers of Jesus, other apprentices of Jesus. That word disciple can also mean apprentice. And so think of someone who apprentices in a given trade. Uh, they, they, they follow after and learn from a master in that given trade. And that's what our role is as Christians. If you're a Christian, your life exists to make more people who apprentice under Jesus, who follow after Jesus. Bible scholar D.A. Carson summarizes these verses by saying this. He says, the aim of Jesus's disciples is to make disciples of all people everywhere without distinction. It's expansive in, in its scope. But like many passages of the Bible that are familiar to us, like this one is, I think we're prone to, to come to the text of the Bible with some unhelpful assumptions preloaded about what this text means. And, and here, if I could, could, could submit to you, is I think the most unhelpful assumption that we probably come to the Great Commission with. We assume that the Great Commission is something that we do as individuals. In other words, we, we take the Great Commission only to refer to personal, person-to-person -person evangelism. Now, to be clear, I think these verses do speak into our own individual calling to, to share the gospel with those in our lives who don't know him. But this command, by its very nature, is corporate. It's communal in its scope. And so let's, let's see how that is the case. A part of making disciples, Jesus says in verse 19, involves baptizing. So, so think about what baptism is. Baptism is not just a personal declaration of one's faith in Jesus. It's more than that. Uh, baptism is an inherently communal activity that involves church elders who present people for baptism, and these ba people are baptized into a community of faith. In other words, baptism itself implies incorporation into a local church. And so the Great Commission, by mentioning baptism as part of the activities that, that Jesus commanded us, is at the very least implying the planting of more churches. Because if you don't plant churches, 
You might say, how do you baptize? In, into what do you baptize people? But I think we can say even more than this from, from this text. Now, if you'll permit me a sports analogy, uh, think about whenever a, a coach in the NBA or the NFL is hired. So the press conference that they do with a new coach when they're hired. It's particularly with team sports like basketball and football. So they'll, they'll have the coach talking and the coach will start talking about how he really wants to shake things up. He wants to get a new scheme in place. And so the coach will talk in vague generalities in football about like spreading out his offensive players to be able to use their speed in space. Or in basketball, he'll talk about how he wants to get his players out running in transition so they can score more baskets that way. But we never know what these broad schemes look like until we actually see the first few games that that, that head coach coaches his players. We don't see it put into practice until we actually see the players execute that particular scheme on the ground. We don't really know what that scheme looks like until the players execute it. So if we want to know what Jesus's great commission scheme fully looks like, then we need to know how his first year players, the disciples, put that scheme into motion on the ground. How did, the, how did the disciples apply the Great Commission in the book of Acts? How did, they, how did they go about making disciples? Well, if you would, keep your finger in Matthew 28 and turn over with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, we'll look at verses 21 to 23 there. And this is an example of how the apostles executed Jesus's Great Commission playbook if you'll permit me to stretch the analogy almost to the breaking point. So Acts 14, starting in verse 21, says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, that's the city of Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, in, in the, the rest of Acts 14, before, that, before we get to verse 21, Paul goes to these different cities. He goes to Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and, and he preaches the gospel in all of these different cities. And people come to know Jesus. But notice, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, okay, that was great, and now I need to go to the next town over and keep making disciples. What he does is he goes back through each of those towns, appointing elders and committing believers to those elders. In other words, Paul follows up his gospel proclamation with a church planting tour. He goes back through these towns and sets things in order, like he commands Titus to do in Crete and Titus chapter one, verse five. And this is Paul's strategy because local churches are God's means for making disciples. Local churches are how people trust in Jesus and get baptized and start following him. And so in other words, to fulfill Jesus's commission, we must plant churches. And it means that every church 
And every Christian, in order to be faithful to this commission to make disciples, people from all nations, must be meaningfully invested in some way in church planting. And church, I would submit to you, one of your primary purposes in life is to see more churches planted so that more people apprentice under Jesus, become disciples of Jesus. And as somebody who's not uh, one of your, your pastors here this morning, but preaching with you, let me just encourage you. Like when, when your pastors here at Liberty talk about church planting often, like they're not going off on a niche subject for the church. They're not talking about an optional kind of niche thing. They're talking about the meat and potatoes of the church's mission. What's in the bullseye of the mission of the church is to plant more churches so that more people may become disciples of Jesus Christ, both here in the United States and around the world. But the question is, like, how does, how does your heart naturally respond then when, with all this talk about church planting and the way that we're called to be meaningfully invested in it, this, this command of Jesus, how does your heart react to that? Well, I, probably a better question would be, how do our hearts react to any of Jesus's totalizing, expansive commands over our lives? We usually respond with some bit of pushback and, and squirming. And, and that's exactly how the disciples respond here in this text. So if you look with me at uh, verses 16 and 17 there of Matthew 28, it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You see, this is where we get to our our second point of the sermon this morning, that this great church planting problem is right here in these verses. Here, the resurrected Jesus appears to his 11 disciples, probably along with a much larger crowd. And when they see him, the text says, some doubted. Now, I think our minds typically, when we see the word doubt, we go immediately towards like intellectual questioning. We start to think of, we think of them saying like, is this really Jesus who we knew earlier and who was raised from the dead? Like, is he really the Messiah, this person? But Jesus, think about it. Jesus had already appeared to these 11 disciples that they had already seen and some of them touched him and confessed that he is the resurrected Messiah. I don't think what's at play here is, is intellectual doubting. That word there that's translated as doubting can also be translated as hesitation or shrinking back. So when they saw him, they worshiped him, verse 17, but some hesitated or shrunk back. They're not doubting who Jesus is intellectually. It, it, they're, they're more so in the face of a bunch of unknowns, they're starting to waffle and hesitate because they don't know what's coming next. That's the idea here. And this is what we all do in the face of an unknown situation, right? We hesitate. Uh, even if we know that a particular investment is a good option for us, we likely hesitate because we can't be completely sure about our, our return on that investment. Or, or we hesitate to, to disclose of our hearts in a friendship, to actually give of ourselves to somebody because we don't know whether or not they'll, they'll accept us or, or reject us. We all hesitate 
in the midst of unknown things. And the disciples here were facing a great unknown. I mean, Jesus, uh, their Messiah and, and their master, who they followed for three years, had, went, had been crucified on the cross and was put in a grave. And they thought that was it. But then he rose from the dead. And, and, and even though Jesus told them repeatedly, this is what was going to happen, they were still shocked by this. They didn't know that this is what was coming. And so when he pops back on the scene three days later, they're overjoyed and excited, but, but they, they must have been filled with so many questions about what this actually meant for their lives. Like as they ask in Acts chapter one, verse six, which Jenna read, would Jesus now bring about the kingdom to Israel? Uh, they might've asked, what's my place in that kingdom? Like, like where are we going from here? What's, what's next? They didn't know. And he answers some of that by giving them this command, but they have no idea how that's actually going to play out in practice. They don't know. And although we live 2,000 years later and we, we have this great commission as a familiar text in the Bible in front of us, you and I still hesitate to believe all that Jesus' resurrection and ascension mean for our lives, particularly his command to plant churches. And when we're faced with that, and the unknowns surrounding that, we often hesitate and shrink back. And Liberty, let me just say this. For, for all of us here, whether we, we're going to this particular church plant or staying or maybe going to another church plant in the future, there are so many unknowns in church planting and in this church plant in particular. Like, we, we don't know whether or not Midtown Community Church will make it as a church. We don't know for how long. We don't know what hardships will come for those of us who are stepping out to plant this new church, as hardships often do come. And you might be here wondering, like, we're sending some people out from this church. Are we going to be able to replace those people? Are we going to be able to replace those people's finances? Are we going to continue to grow as a church as we plant, or, or will that be stifled? And maybe a question for all of us on a broader scale, what does it look like to plant a church in, in the area in our region that is on the outside anyway, the most hostile to Christianity? Even as a country, and we live in a country that's growing increasingly hostile to Christian faith. Or maybe on a more relational note, like what does it mean to send people out from a church fellowship that I have meaningful relationship with? There's a, there's a deep aspect in which there's grief involved in that. These are just some of the questions that could cause us to falter and hesitate and shrink back at Jesus's command to plant churches, to make disciples. So then the question for us is, is how do we move from hesitancy and doubt to worship and obedience? How do we willingly and joyfully sacrifice to see new churches planted and more and more people come to know Jesus? How do we move through our hesitancy and doubt to joyful worship and obedience? Well, that's why Jesus gives us a great church planting promise here in this text. And Jesus gives us this promise. And I pray that as we step out together as two churches to plant this church, that we would cling to this promise tightly. 
And this promise that Jesus gives here isn't just a promise for the foundation of one church plant. Like this promise that Jesus gives is the jet fuel that can power our hearts to a lifetime of sacrificial service to see more churches planted. That's how good this promise is that Jesus gives us here. But before we get to that promise in verse 20, and to really understand it, we need to understand the gospel truth that we're told in verse 18. So would you look at verse 18 with me? It says there, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, when we read this verse, especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time, I think we tend to uh, put this verse in the category of God's sovereignty, like his rule and being in charge of all things. So we think here it's saying, Jesus is saying, well, I'm God and I'm in control of all things when he says all authority has been given to me. And, And while that's certainly true, I think that only fills up our tanks like halfway with what we need to plant churches. There's more to this promise here than that. More to this truth here than that. Think about it in terms of a king over a specific nation. So you can say that a king has authority over a country because he is the king over a country. He has authority as king over that country. But what if enemy troops invade and, and, and dethrone the king and push push his people out into exile from the kingdom? And then what if the king leads a a rebellion, a a counterinsurgence to come back, take back over the land, and the king regains command of his country, and he sits back on the throne and says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Be a big thing for an earthly king to say. But you see how that's different. It's the voice of a king who has, who, has, who has been pushed back and has regained his authority, has defeated his enemy. That's what we see here in this text. To, to maybe put it a bit more provocatively, what Jesus is saying he has here in Matthew 28, Jesus didn't have in Matthew chapter 4 verse 9. When Satan comes to him and he says, if you bow down and worship me, every kingdom on earth will be yours. I think that's a real offer from Satan to the Lord Jesus there. Because Satan and his, the enemies of Satan's sin and death have infiltrated God's creation. And Jesus there, rather than taking the easy path to victory and joining with the enemy, Jesus as our faithful king pushed back darkness from this earth during his life. Jesus defeated our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death by giving of himself sacrificially and by rising from the dead. And then as Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse four, Jesus was raised from the dead as the son of God in power. Jesus was set up as the king who defeated the enemy and reclaimed his rightful rule over every nation of the earth. And you see how that completely changes the way that we understand this command. Look at verse 19 where he says, go therefore and make. You see that? So because Jesus has taken back his rightful lordship from our enemies of every square inch of this globe, we go to all nations with confidence because we go under the banner of a resurrected and victorious king. 
And we join in his victory by his blood and by the word of our testimony, as it says in the book of Revelation. And so Liberty, we go to Midtown with confidence because Jesus is the rightful Lord over Midtown. He is king over Midtown. Jesus is king over Camp Hill. He is king over our nation and he is king over this world. Like Jesus has kneecapped Satan by his death and resurrection. That's what this text is telling us. Satan cannot stand against the gospel of King Jesus. And there are many things that could scare us about church planting in general, about church planting in an area like Midtown. These are the things that scare me and keep me up at night on any given night. On the surface, it seems like there's greater ideological resistance to the gospel. There's all kinds of different questions surrounding personal and sexual identity in people's lives there. There's all kinds of divergent spiritual spiritualities that people express and live into in that place. But liberty, the good news is that there is no threat to the lordship of Jesus in Midtown. There's none. So we go with confidence. And where Jesus proclaims, Jesus's church proclaims his gospel and displays it by their actions, we bear witness to his authority, to everyone there and to all of the spiritual powers in the heavenly places that would want to see the church taken down. Jesus is Lord, and the good news and the confidence that we go in, because Jesus is Lord over Midtown, the life stories and trajectories of the people there are not a dead end. They're not a set reality, because praise God, neither are ours. <laughs> neither were ours. Jesus changed our lives, and Jesus is Lord there and has people there. And so we go with confidence, not under our own authority or our own banner, but under the banner and flag of King Jesus. And so that reality in and of itself, like as I'm preaching about it, I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's start this church tomorrow. I'm ready. But in and of itself, there is, that is enough, but there is even more. And this is where we get to the promise of verse 20. Read this with me, church. It says there, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord Jesus, who was proclaimed at the beginning of Matthew's gospel as Emmanuel, God with us, ends this gospel by promising his people that he will be with them even into the end of the age. But now here's the question. If Jesus says this and then ascends to heaven, how is he with us? That would be like me coming over to your house for dinner and saying, I'm going to stay all night long. We're going to shut it down here. Bye. And then get into my car and driving home immediately. Uh, how, how is Jesus going to be with us? Well, Jenna read it in the liturgy this morning, but Acts chapter one, verse eight, this is how Jesus will be with us. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and at the end of the earth. Church, we don't go alone. We don't step out to obey this high lofty command of Jesus alone. He gives us his personal empowering spirit. 
to come to us, to comfort us with his love and to empower us in all of the ways that we would want to hesitate and shrink back. He empowers us with his grace to press forward and to take gospel ground. And so we don't do this alone. Liberty Church, the personal power and presence of the risen Jesus resides in you. And so you can step out into scary things, into things that would cause you to shrink back. We, we can step out to share the gospel whenever we're terrified to and don't want to open our mouths. We can step out to lead in generosity. We can step up into service for the, after those people leave this church. We, we can step into praying bigger and bolder prayers than we ever have in our entire life for people to come to know Jesus and for his church to grow. And because I'm here, and I'm up in front, I have to say it, we can also consider maybe going with a new church that needs people, even if you want nothing more than to remain here and remain comfortable in a place and people that you know. And we're so prone to forget this, right? But if we forget this and we begin to think that it's all on us to see this work of church planting and the Great Commission accomplished, then we're gonna putter out and we're gonna be crushed. But if we remember that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit, that everything that he requires of us, he gives to us, that he is with us, we will go with our hearts and engines filled up to joyfully sacrifice for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because it's not us, it's him working through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so as we close this morning and come to the Lord's table. There's only one thing really for us to do, I think, and that's to pray. And uh, prayer is often, and it is, a convenient transition between one element in a worship service to another. But church, Jesus hears our prayers and we are people who desperately need Jesus to show up in order for any of this to happen in our lives and the life of this church. So would you join me in praying that Jesus would send us his Holy Spirit and would empower us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us on our own. You did not leave this world on its own, occupied by enemy forces, but that you sent your son, Jesus, to push back darkness and to rescue us. Thank you that he is our king today and that we stand under his banner and flag and that he is building his church. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit and encourage us and empower us in all of the ways that we would want to shrink back from what you've called us to. We pray that you would help us in all of the different areas of our lives where we doubt you to be filled up with all that Jesus is for us and that you would send us out from here today as those who are empowered by your spirit to love you and love your world. And we pray that you would do more through our efforts than, than we could by our own potential. Surprise us, Lord, we pray. God, I pray that you would, uh, that you would save people that a year that we don't even know right now, that a year from now we'd be sitting here at Liberty Church or sitting at Midtown Community Church in Harrisburg with people that have we're not Christians right now that know the Lord Jesus 
have been baptized into his church and are seeking to follow him with their lives. And we ask all of these things because we know, Jesus, that you have control and authority, that you are king, and that you love us and hear our prayers and delight to send your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would do that. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.